Well, good morning, fellowship family. Hey, would you stand and let's sing together.
be seated, there is what he go. said. There you go. Thank you, Rochelle. Good, good morning. My name's Abel. This is Rochelle, and we are grateful to be together with you all today. And uh, when I, if I asked you, what are two words, what are a few words that you would like your local church to be known for? Think about that for a second. What are a couple words? A couple words I think of are connected and generous. I would love for our body to be known as a local body that's connected and generous, both from outsiders and insiders. And a few ways to be connected for y'all are small groups, obviously, community group, men's group, women's group, discover group. It's a great way to, to be connected to this body. Also serving, worshiping one service, serving the next service, worship one, serve one, great way to be connected. Another way is uh, one that I have to highlight, and that is an experience we have called a link retreat. And the link retreat is for parents or adults with fourth to sixth graders. This used to be called, it's kind of a combo of Camp 3456. We used to do that. Parent-child retreat, great way to connect with your son or daughter or fourth or sixth grader, if you have a grandparents, aunts, uncles, whoever. Um, and it's you can either do it an overnight, this is at New Life Ranch, about an hour away, or you can do just uh, a day retreat. So, and connect with other families from fellowship. Uh, last week, Florida got slammed by Hurricane Ian, and uh, our heart goes out to so many friends, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, and Fellowship wants to be a generous body, and so we've opened up a disaster relief fund that you can contribute to, and we're going to send 100% of the proceeds will go to uh, a church, uh, a church partner in Naples, and they'll distribute to families as they have needs, okay? So uh, I briefly introduced Rochelle earlier. Uh, this is Rochelle Quintanilla. Hello, Rochelle. Hi, Abel. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Yeah. You can hear the hooping and hollering coming from this direction. Rochelle works for, with our 7th to 12th grade students and leaders, and, um, and so we're so grateful to have her on our team. Been here for about two months, worked at Fayetteville High School for the previous few years, and, um, and Tori had a child and is home with her baby, and so we get Rochelle on our staff team. We're pumped to have you. Yeah, well, thanks, Abel. Um, like Abel said, my name's Rochelle, and I get the joy this morning of getting to share the ways in which the Lord is moving and working in the hearts of our students in FSM, and specifically through these first Sunday mornings of the month. So if you weren't aware, it is the first Sunday of the month. We are in October, and what that basically means is that our 7th through 12th graders in FSM get to come over here in this room, in this building, and worship in a room of all ages. So um, we are really, really excited to be here this morning, and um, the Lord is working in FSM. He is moving and changing lives in our students' hearts, whether that's Sunday morning over in our FSM room or even as we gather um, on Wednesday nights across the town for cell groups. But God is doing incredible things in ways in which our staff could have never imagined or predicted. And first Sunday mornings are a really special and awesome way for us to get to come into this room get to gather and understand and our knowledge of the Lord together and also just get to celebrate what the Lord is doing with each other. And so before I go on and on and on about how beneficial it is for our students to be in this room, I'm going to invite Rhett up to do that for me. So say hey to Rhett. Rhett is a 12th grade guy who has been a part of Cell Group for a while now, um, really grasps and captures the vision of Serve One, Worship One on Sunday mornings. And so Rhett has so willingly um, said yes to coming up here this morning and sharing a little bit about how First Sundays have impacted him. So Rhett, my first question for you is how, tell us about the ways in which you're plugged in and maybe even the specific ways that you're using your special giftings given by the Lord to serve the church body as a whole. All right. Um, so, hey, everybody. everybody. Um, I'm in a cell group, and I love my guys to death. I've been with them for a long time. They're, like, they're right there. Um, I'm also in, I also serve in the kids' ministries over there, um, and I'm also in a video internship here, which is just so much fun. 
Um, you know, sorry. Uh, I, I love to see the uh, individual um, life change that God provides for all these people, and I also love to see um, the broader um, life change in the community. And it's really inspiring to come here um, and worship with a more mature community, kinda, um, on a more every first Sunday. It's a lot of fun, and to see that is really inspiring as a student. So. Yeah, I love that. I love hearing it. Um, my second question for you is, can you, so you've been a part of FSM for a while, been plugged into a cell group, um, and you've seen the transition to this new campus and the start of these first Sunday gatherings with FSM in this room. Can you just share with us a little bit how that new has impacted you and your own personal walk with the Lord? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I love worshiping with my high school friends, but I also love worshiping with my friends that aren't in high school, like my friends' parents, cell group leaders, even some of my teachers, and all the other um, little relationships that I've gotten to build in the wider body. It's really awesome to see because there's just so many um, stages of life and stories in this room right now, and to just get know all those and get to be a part of it is really awesome when I'm just a senior in high school. Um, and then... It's awesome to see just, like, I'm wanted and wanted to be here and, like, liked and respected to be here um, when we get to come. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, what an encouraging um, thing to hear this morning. And I know that you're one of many stories um, who are being impacted by these first Sunday mornings. Um, myself included, because as an FSM staff member, I wouldn't get the opportunity to come over here and worship in a room with all of you guys if it weren't for these first Sundays. So what we want to say is just thank you. Thanks for being inviting to us. I know that we're wild and crazy and we take up a pretty large section of the room and we may even force you guys to find a new seat on these Sunday mornings. But we are so thankful that you guys have welcomed us into this time. It means a lot. And the prayer for First Sundays is not that it would impact just our students, but that it would also impact the adults in this room too, because we truly believe that there is beauty in multi-generational worship, and we really believe that there's a lot that we can learn from each other. So thanks, you guys. Another way that we get to come together and celebrate what the Lord is doing is through baptism. So this first Sunday, we have Ashlyn Wilson is getting baptized by her father and her cell group leader, Becca is going to speak a little bit on Jesus's transformation in her heart. So go ahead and turn your focus to the baptismal. Good morning. Thank you guys so much for celebrating with us this morning. And um, like Rochelle said, thanks for moving over so we could come in and hang out. Um, my name is Becca Ford, and it's my pleasure and privilege to share a little bit about who Ashlyn is and about the decision that she's made to be baptized this morning. And um, we are so thrilled that because of the example that Jesus set and because of God's word, we have the privilege of stepping forward in obedience and baptism as another act of faith proclaiming God's glory. It has been my great delight to walk through life with Ashlyn um, since she was in seventh grade as her cell group leader and to see the way that God has captured your heart and recaptured your heart again and again as you grow in maturity in him. Um, you made a personal decision when you were five years old, right? Stepping into the legacy of faith that your parents, Paul and Gayla, richly set for you. Um, it was at a conversation, in a conversation with your dad that you said, I want to know Jesus as my personal savior. Um, and what a testament to what it looks like to be a loving father, to point your child to the most important thing that life could possibly offer you. Um, Paul and Gayla, thank you for raising, endeavoring to raise children who want to walk with Jesus and for setting that example for them, but also for young parents like me um, and for a community. Um, Ashlyn, one of my favorite things about who you are is the intentionality and the determination with, you, with which you lean into the Lord. Um, your longing to be a light for him in the capacity that he has given you is so encouraging to me and challenging to me. Thank you for sharing that. Um, there's a verse in Psalm 89 that says, 
verse 14 says of the Lord, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. And then it says, and this is the blessing that I want to speak over you on your baptism, is blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, O Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They exult in your righteousness, for you are their glory and strength. And Ashlyn, it is my great prayer for you that this act of baptism would just be one more way that you get to amplify God's glory in your life. And even next year, as you go on to college, that you would feel the courage and boldness that comes from knowing that you are walking in obedience, listening to the Holy Spirit. Ashlyn, we're so delighted to see this act of obedience. Becca, thank you for that. <clears throat> I asked you not to make me cry. It's going to be really hard. But thank you for that. Um, it's a great joy to be able to do this this morning and to, to watch Ashlyn take her next steps in faith. And so, Ashlyn, is it your testimony that you have trusted Jesus to pay for your sins and to give you eternal life? Yes. Okay. In that case, then, it's my privilege as your earthly father, but also as your brother in Christ, to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried in baptism with Christ, and raised again to walk anew. Before we continue to worship in song, um, would you stand? And I, I would love to read this piece of scripture for us uh, this morning. This is from our passage today uh, in Ephesians chapter 3. And it says, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may now approach God with freedom and confidence. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Church, as we worship this morning, I ask you not to forget where we have come from. We were once distant from God. We were once called enemies of God. But the scripture tells us that it was actually his plan through the work of Christ to bring us back into reconciliation, bring us back into right standing with God, and also to bring us in unity with one another, to make us the body of Christ, to make us his church. And the scripture tells us that he did that for a purpose. And it's so that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So as we continue to offer our song, as we offer our, our testimony, as we sing our story, it's my prayer that we do so in a way that makes the heavens ring out with God's praise so that all of creation would know that the God that we serve is the ultimate source of wisdom and life in the universe. So it's my encouragement to you all the songs that we're going to sing this morning, they're all about who Jesus is and what he's done. It's my encouragement to you to sing these songs with boldness and with confidence. Let's continue to praise his name. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength. My song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, and firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease.
His body lay, the light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious dancing this up from the grave he rose love you. This morning we give you our song. We give you our voices. We give you, we hope to give you our entire selves. We work to give you ourselves, Lord. We give you our offering so that all of this would be for your glory. We love you, Lord. Amen. You can have a seat. Savior's love 
stand and declare this together. Christ ask that this morning you would reveal more of yourself to us. That what's, what's mysterious would become known in our hearts, God, that we would understand more of your full story and the full gospel, and that it would just transform everything about us. So pray that your spirit would work in us this morning through your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys have a seat. mysterious this morning, right? I, I like mystery. I like mysterious things with one caveat that eventually someone explains it to me. Like I don't want it to be left uh, unexplained. And when you think about mystery, a definition for mystery in our English language would be something that is beyond understanding. So think mystery novels and TV shows and movies. Like we want that mystery and to be captivated, but eventually we want to know the answers. But maybe you don't. Maybe you like being left with things that are uh, not explained. If so, I would encourage you to watch the TV show Lost uh, from the 2000s. It has been 12 years since that thing ended, and I am still angry that there were so many more questions at the end than actual explanations. And I grew up watching uh, the show Unsolved Mysteries, which I should not watch because it's literally in the title. It says it will not be solved by the end of it. And so I would get really frustrated, like I just wanna know what happens. And there are things that are mysterious. Now, in scripture, while there are things that are mysterious, things we can't fully understand, I think the Trinity would be one, what, what happened between Jesus and the Father on the cross, there's some of these things that are hard for our minds to comprehend. When we see the word mystery in Ephesians chapter three, it's the Greek word mysterion. And Paul actually uses it in a different way than we might think in our English language. It's things that are hidden, these hidden truths that are made known by divine revelation. And so these are mysteries that we actually can comprehend, but we need the Lord himself to reveal them in a way that we're able to understand. Now, this is not some like spiritual truth that you have to go to a spiritual realm in a temple and it's for the spiritual elite and you get access to it, but other people don't. These are things that through God's word and through the person of Jesus are actually now made known. And all we have to have is the spirit of God within us to understand that. So whether you have a seminary degree or you've been walking with Jesus for a day, what we're gonna look at today, we can comprehend. And our media team did a great job attempting to capture this visually, this idea of mystery. And let me explain this. You'll see it, you probably saw it on some of the, the worship slides, but it's also in our Ephesians book. And it's this idea that over here, there are these things that are hidden and actually takes the light of Christ to reveal what those things are for us to see it. They've existed, but the light of Christ actually reveals and illuminates. And then once they've been illuminated, we can now take these truths as the church and pass these on and steward these. So that's what was communicated there because in Ephesians, Paul was actually revealing a truth from God. And some of the people loved it and others hated it because it seemed to go against a lot of the things that they knew 
about their history. And so in Ephesians chapter three, we pick it up this week with chapter three, verse one, and Paul actually begins to pray. And so he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And now most of your versions are probably gonna have this dash that you can see on the screen, which means that there's some type of a side and there's a change of thought. So Paul seems to start praying and then interrupt himself in the prayer. Anybody identify? You, you have your train of thought going one way and then something shifts it. And what he's doing is he's gonna actually stop before he picks the prayer back up in verse 14, which Mark will cover next week. He's gonna take these 13 verses and actually re-emphasize something and make sure that the people understand what he's talking about. And if you've been here for a couple of these Ephesians teaching you, teachings, you might be able to guess that these verses that we're gonna be covering today, all one sentence, a long sentence in the original Greek where Paul's really doubling down on this idea. But before we get into it, notice he calls himself a prisoner. Some versions say for Christ Jesus. The ESV now says of Christ Jesus. And what does that mean? Well, while Paul was devoted fully to Jesus and in a way indebted to him to pass on this grace that he had been given, he's also literally in a prison of sorts. And so he, he's writing this most likely from house arrest in Rome where there's a rotation of guards watching him, potentially even to protect him. Because if you go back and read Paul's speech and appeal at the end of Acts, the, the Jews who are listening, like there's some tension, but the Jews who are listening uh, actually sit and listen to him for a little while until he gets to one thing and then they erupt. And it's when he says that Gentiles are now part of the family of God. And the Jews are like, kill him, get him out of here, which is why he ends up being captured and led away. And so that's why I say it could even be for his own protection. But now a little piece of pastoral friendly advice, like an aside for this morning, please don't buy into the cultural narrative that today's culture is as bad as it's ever been for Christians. Let's read history books. Let's read this verse right? Paul is in prison. He's preaching the gospel in such a way in that culture that it will actually eventually lead to his death. And so this narrative that we have to fight for the future of the church because it's in jeopardy usually comes from a place of fear, a loss of control, and a loss of power. And so the reminder this morning is that our power is in the person of Jesus Christ, not in our ability as a church to be a political or social majority in our culture. End of aside back into the text. Paul's about to review, okay? He, he takes these 13 verses and he reviews, so let's do a little review ourselves. Two weeks ago, this is the graph that we used to kind of help capture Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, talking about what Christ has done for individuals. I don't have 35 minutes to review it. Uh, all of our teachings are online, and these really do build on each other, so if you miss a week, would really encourage you to go watch those so you can see how things build, but this is what Christ does for individuals. He takes us, which is all of us, that are dead, and he provides a way for us to have life in him. And it's through the, the power of the resurrection at the cross, his perfect sacrifice. That's how we have access to life in Jesus. Now, what does God actually do for his people? And who are the people of God? The way we would answer that in the 21st century is probably a little different than they would have in the first century because we have the whole text of scripture, right? We, we have the story, but when Ephesians is being written, the Holy Spirit is still inspiring Paul and others to write these things down and revealing these mysterions, these hidden truths so that they can come to light and people can actually know some of these answers. So what I want us to try and see this morning through this graph is what has God done for his people as a whole. We've seen what he has done for individuals, but what does he do for his people and who are his people? So if you think about this, this is like a timeline, okay, with Christ in the center. And so everything on this side would be what has happened before Jesus and everything on this side would be what happens after Jesus. And so we're gonna be kind of diving into that and, and we'll see a couple of things really from chapter two. We've gotta review chapter two to understand the context of this. And you'll see this, this kind of different color. That's to illustrate that it's actually Christ who not only makes access for certain things to happen, but through him and his sacrifice and his story, he illuminates the whole story of God for us to be able to see it more clearly and for some of these mysteries to be revealed. So what did we learn in chapter two? 
Well, Ephesians 2, verses 12, verse 12 says to the Gentiles, that's who Paul's writing to, that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, as a review, a Gentile is anyone who is simply not a Jew. And there's a, a religious and or ethnic aspect of being a Jew. And if you do not fall into that, specifically the ethnic portion, then you're considered a Gentile, which for most of us in here, that would mean us, that we are Gentiles. And so to understand what it means, though, that as Gentiles were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to these covenants of promise, we need a little Old Testament history, a little review. Uh, it's very complex, okay? If you've ever tried to read through the Bible, through the Old Testament, like you're putting stories together, and you're like, what is happening? So to help me, I keep this three by five card in my Bible that brings a lot of clarity, okay? And you can just see all of it laid out. And it actually does help me because what this is, is an overview of the timeline of this class called Panorama of the Bible. And it's actually a class written by Robert Cup, who founded Fellowship, and he's taught it for many years. And he's, he will actually be here in January to start that 12-week class on Sunday morning. So if you've never had an overview of the Bible or an in-depth look at some of the Old Testament and New Testament stories, I would encourage you to sign up for that when it comes. Now, we don't have time for that. I don't have 12 weeks uh, this morning to give you or Robert's brain. So instead, you get three covenants in three minutes, okay, to understand the history of the Old Testament. So here we go. Years after sin entered the world, right, through Adam, through Eve, God began to implement this plan to redeem his people. And while his heart was for all mankind to be redeemed, he actually chose one man and therefore one nation through this man to redeem all people through him. And so he finds this righteous man named Abram. And that guy, his name would later become Abraham, and God enters into a covenant with him. It's called the Abrahamic covenant, really simple. Most important covenant for us to understand. There's a promise of land, there's a promise of descendants, and God says, I will make out of you a great nation. This is Genesis chapter 12, if you're taking notes. You can go back and review that. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob's name would later be changed to Israel, okay, which is where the nation of Israel comes from, from Jacob and his son. So Jacob is the grandson of this Abraham who received that Abrahamic covenant. Now, they end up, the, the sons and the family in Egypt, through betrayal of one of the brothers, through famine, but also through God's favor to get them to this place where they can actually survive this famine uh, while in Egypt. But over time, the people, generations die off and, and really they become slaves in Egypt. And so God raises up his servant named Moses, who actually comes and frees the Israelites through the 10 plagues in this battle with Pharaoh. And he frees them out of Egypt and they begin this wandering through the desert to try to get to this promised land that was given as a covenant, right, to Abraham. And so in that, there's actually a second covenant. While they're wandering, God stops and he pulls Moses aside and makes a covenant with him. This is the Mosaic covenant. It's in Exodus chapter 19. He gives Israel the law, and he tells them to be set apart from other nations. I want you to follow this law and be set apart. They can't fully do it. There's lots of disobedience. A whole generation dies off, and then Joshua actually takes the people of God into this promised land. But even while they're there, while they're supposed to be set apart and look different, they start asking for the things of these other nations. We want rulers. We want judges. We want kings like they have. So God gives them to them. Most of the time they work out horribly, but there's this one king named King David. He's the second king. And God actually stops again to make a covenant with him. This is the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And God makes this promise to him that a ruler would come through his lineage, through the tribe of Judah, to rule and reign over the people of God, to usher in this new kingdom and liberate the people. And so for the Jewish people, they know these covenants. And Gentiles were not privy to these. They were not part of this. This was right for the nation of Israel. These are the things they had walked through. And so you've got generation after generation, these, these Jews are dying and they're going, where is our freedom? Where is our king? Where is our Messiah? And then after some silence, this guy named Jesus comes along. And some of the Jews, a lot of the Jews are really skeptical because some of the things that he's saying and preaching and doing actually seem to go against some of the things that they've learned over the years and what they've added to the law. And we see in chapter two that it says that for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
Now, do you notice the Trinity in that verse? For through Jesus, we both, we'll explain that in a minute, have access in one spirit to the Father. Anytime I'm doing a Bible study and I see a verse that has all three members of the, the Trinity mentioned in some ways, I just draw a triangle as a quick reference as I'm going through Scripture to go, okay, there's a verse about the Trinity where we see it. And so you've got these Jews really skeptical because then this other message comes as Jesus does his thing and he leaves. And now the, the scripture is being written, these letters are being written, and the Jews are hearing things like this right here. That Jesus might create in himself one new man in place of the two. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. These nations that have been persecuting us for centuries, these people that have been killing us, you're preaching a message that Jesus says, we're all now part of the same family? That's not fair. And that doesn't make any sense. And notice the depth of what this family looks like. It says that he might create one new man in the place of two. Where else in scripture do we hear that language of two becoming one? In marriage. And there's some intertwining of the people formerly divided by this wall of hostility, which chapter two says Jesus broke. And they're, they're intertwining into this new group of people that are one, despite their major differences, their backgrounds economically, nationally, racially, religiously, all people are now invited to experience and taste the goodness and grace of Jesus and what he's provided and to be one together. And Paul's writing the Gentiles going, hey guys, this message has not been received well. I'm in prison, okay? So just know some things are gonna happen and you're gonna face some opposition. Now, let's try to put ourselves in the shoes of uh, the Jews a little bit because I kind of identify and I think I would act the same way if I felt what they felt. I don't really fault them. And so if you think about these two commercials, which I've seen uh, multiple times over the last year, maybe this will help you understand. This one over here is the Patrick Price with State Farm. Any Chiefs fans in the room? Yeah, okay, wow, more praise for that, all right. And so you've got Patrick Mahomes, who as great of a quarterback as he is, he's equally as terrible an actor. And I would tell him that to his face and humbly ask for his autograph. And so you've got him going, hey, like I'm Patrick Mahomes. I get the Patrick price, right? Like no one else gets that. It's special. It's reserved for me. Like you can, you can give insurance to these people, but they don't get the Patrick price. Something special. Or maybe you've seen the AT&T commercials where old customers and new customers get the same deal. And no one can figure it out because as a new customer, you expect a new deal, a better deal, entry points or something that gives you a better rate. And as old customers, you expect a deal. Like, I've been here for 10 years. Where's my loyalty? And so there's this thing within us as humans that it's really hard for us to see outside of our own experience. And whatever our experience is, it's usually looked at as more special and deserving of something. But the Jews have some major points in this argument of they've been the people of God for so long. How in the world could they not be the only chosen people of God anymore? just doesn't seem fair. And so Paul's actually using chapters two and three to bring a lot of clarity to this. And so after he starts his prayer and then pulls back, here's what he says in verse two. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And Paul multiple times is going to talk about the grace of God and how there's been things that he's been given that he now calls himself a steward of to pass on to others. Y'all know what a steward is, right? It's someone who... who temporarily manages something for someone else, takes care of it, but eventually is going to hand this off and to do something with it. And Paul's saying this good news, like it doesn't stop with me. This grace, it doesn't stop with me. I am a steward of the grace of God and I want to pass this off. But then he gives this barrage of mysterious and revelatory words of mystery and things are made known by revelation and you can perceive into the insight into this mystery, which wasn't made known before, but now it's been revealed and there's this mysterious stuff going on. In fact, two-thirds of the references to mystery in the book of Ephesians come right here in this section. So there's something that he's really trying to emphasize and say, hey, now this is true. This has been revealed. And it has to do with this question of who are the people of God? Who is welcome into the family 
of God. And there have been hints of it in the Old Testament up to this point, but it hasn't been fully revealed or illuminated until Jesus came in. And so what Paul is evidencing here is part of our Christian theology or doctrine called progressive revelation. Now, don't hear the word progressive and freak out. It has nothing to do politically. It's this idea that over time, God reveals more and more and more of himself. That he doesn't, you know, in the beginning, just step in and reveal everything about himself and everything about his plan. But there's things that are revealed over time. Now, it's important to remember that that doesn't mean that we're moving from a doctrine that's untrue to a doctrine that's true, but one that has less information to a more full picture. And so God is not changing as he's revealing these things. He's revealing more of himself and his plan. And Paul is gonna authenticate this, that this is a revelation from God. And he does it from a couple of things. One, he says, it's direct from him. I didn't make this up, right? But is that enough for us to trust? And then he goes, he's also, I think it's at the end of verse five, he's also revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. This wasn't just revealed to me. And in fact, it lines up. Once we're able to see clearly through the light of Jesus and what he illuminates, it lines up with the whole of scripture, which is really for us to to realize today in the 21st century that just because God tells someone something, like God told me this, is that affirmed through other people? Is that affirmed through his scripture? Does it line up with the character of God? And here, it actually does. So what is this mystery that's being revealed? We saw it in chapter two. Now we really see it clearly. He just outright says it in three. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, there's debate amongst Christian theologians as to whether the church is a new and distinct entity and, you know, different from from Israel and fellowship, our leadership leans more that way, or if the church is a continuation and replacement of Israel and Israel has now gone away. We're not going there this morning, okay? Don't have time, don't want to. But I can tell you this, whichever way you land, what God is clearly calling his people to here in the book of Ephesians is oneness in the church and unity in the church. And in the original Greek, there's a a prefix that's used three times in this verse. We would translate it as co, that Gentiles are now co-heirs, co-members of the same body, and co-partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now let this set in. The people previously not even allowed in the temple are now the temple of God themselves. With the Lord living in them, the Holy Spirit working in them. And that is good news because guess what? That's us. And Paul's saying, I will give everything to make sure that this message gets to you because there's opposition. Now, we're gonna need to go a little deeper than the Patrick Price to understand why this is such a tense thing. So Stephen tried this a couple of months ago. Uh, where are my dogs at? Oh, one of you still barks, great. No, no one else does. All right, these are some of our seniors, some of our senior guys and girls. And I want y'all to picture yourself, if you're not one of them, picture yourself as a senior in high school, maybe 17, almost 18, and it's your second semester of your senior year. Okay, you're an only child, and without consulting you, your parents adopt another 17-year-old right before you graduate, and they say, hey, you have a new sibling, and guess what? You are going to share a room and a wardrobe and a car and a bank account, and you're going to go to college next year together and be roommates, Also, we went and met with our lawyer this week and we changed our inheritance so that you each get half. Welcome them to the family, right? The new sibling is gonna be ecstatic. I've never had a family. I've never had parents that have taken care of me. I've never had a car. I'll take half a car. Never had inheritance, some promise. The older sibling, there's gonna be some frustration and a lot of questions. And in some ways, rightly so, like, hey, they haven't been here for the first 17 years of my life. They haven't had to put up with all the things that I have. They haven't gone through the trauma and the pains that our family has gone through together. In fact, they were some of the ones causing it. And now you're saying, 
they're my sibling and I have to share everything with them. That's the tension that is happening here and why Paul is saying, this is going to cause some issues. One being my imprisonment, but just know I will give my life to make sure that this message gets to you because it's truth from the Lord that you can now be a child of God. And he affirms it even more as he goes on in verses seven and eight to say, this is the gospel that I've been tasked with preaching to you. Okay, this gospel of not only reconciliation between God and man, but now that the people of God are being reconciled together and that Jews and Gentiles are now members of one body. And the only reason that I'm able to claim it is because of the grace of God. Now, why would he say that? Let's think contextually. Paul is writing to Gentiles, most likely. What's Paul's ethnicity? He's a Jew. So he's going, if anyone should be saying this to you, it's not me. Like, I'm the one who used to persecute you. But it's by the grace of God that he's transformed my life and now given me this that I do not feel worthy to give to you. But it's by grace. You'll see that he calls himself the very least of all the saints, the leastest right, the worst of the worst, because he's, this is not self-deprecation or false humility. This is a real view of the grace of God to allow him to be the one to give this message. Paul was specifically tasked with making sure the message of the gospel reached past the Jewish people so that the Gentiles knew, so that we would know that we can be part of the family of God through Jesus Christ. Now, I love what happens, though, in verse 9 and 10. Jesus doesn't just illuminate what's happening at that moment right before the cross and right after the cross. But the work of Jesus actually sheds light on the whole story of God. And we start to see that this has been God's plan hidden for ages, right? We see that in verse, or chapter three, verse nine, that the mystery was hidden for ages in God. And we talked a little bit about that Abrahamic covenant. And if you go back and read it in Genesis 12, God doesn't just say that I will make you a great nation. He then says, and through you, all the nations will be blessed. And if that's not enough of a glimpse to connect these two, Galatians 3 verse 8 lays it out very plainly. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Preached the gospel to Abraham thousands of years ago before Christ ever appeared on earth, saying, in you, all the nations shall be blessed blessed. This was God's plan, but it took Jesus Christ to illuminate this plan and for us to be able to see. And the beauty is it doesn't just go really far back this way on the graph, but we actually see that now we are included. And verse 10 says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. If you keep reading, it's to the rulers and authorities, these heavenly beings, meaning angels are not all-knowing. They're watching the story and grace of God unfold as he works in and through his body, the church, which is nuts. This is the the third medium through which God has revealed this good news to people. The first was direct revelation to Paul. The second was the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul to write this letter for people to be able to read and to hear. And the third is now the living, breathing church of Jesus that lives out this good news, the visual. And that is a bold strategy by God. Not only to send his son as a sacrifice and atonement, a perfect sacrifice and atonement for sinful people, but then to take that message and hand it to those same people and say, all right, it's your turn. It's your turn to pass this message on, to take this truth and to take this grace that I've given you and to be a steward of it to the world for the whole world to see. People will see the manifold wisdom of God. This is the multifaceted, multi-layered, beautiful, complex wisdom of the creator God. And they will see that through the church and the way that the church lives. Our coworkers, our neighbors, our family members, politicians, the poor, the rich, the foreigner, the local, will see it by the unity with eyes set on Jesus that the church of Jesus lives by. So, when people make the argument like, hey, we're not gonna talk about, you know, maybe these things or, or, you know, unity amongst denominations isn't that important or racial reconciliation or the rich and the poor doing life together or different nationalities feeling welcome at the table of Jesus. Read chapters two and three. Paul says this gospel of this overflow of the cross in our lives and what it does for people is worth dying for. 
and I want you to know about it. And all of this story, every bit of this hinges on Jesus. It was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This was God's purpose to bridge people back to himself, but it took Jesus for it to be realized, for it to be actualized, and for us to get to experience that benefit of being a child of God. Now, this is our last slide for the morning. It's very complex, so let me explain. We'll start down here. Paul closes before he gets back into his prayer. This is kind of the end of his aside when he says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So he's telling them like, please don't get discouraged. Suffering is going to be part of it. This is part of the way we identify with Jesus and I'm willing to do it and to risk my life to make sure that you get this message. But what is he suffering for? What is that message? And I really do believe that it's a summation of two and three that he just went through, this double reconciliation, because we as Gentiles were double alienated, alienated from God and alienated from the people of God. And we needed Jesus to step in and reconcile both for us, which he did at the cross. So I wanna close with with two prompts, and you'll see them at the top. And these are words that uh, have been ascribed to Paul in scripture. And that's that he is a steward of grace and a minister of reconciliation. And what do I mean by that? Well, how are we stewarding the grace that's been given to us? What Christ did on the cross to provide us individual salvation. How do we take that grace and pass that grace on? Not just the good news of the gospel, but daily acts of grace. And then how are we ministers of reconciliation? Knowing that we've been reconciled to God and he's called us to reconcile with others. I needed both of those this last week, and it came from a teammate. Uh, we were in a meeting, and something didn't go as planned. And if you know me, if this stage is like type B is over there in the baptismal and type A is over there by the cross, I'm in Centerton, right? I am very, very, very type A. And so when things don't go the way that I think they should or the way that I see they should, I get frustrated. Well, I shut down in a meeting, and it was with our team. And I basically acted like a baby, shut down. After the meeting was over, I walked out, and... I felt it. I felt the shame afterwards, but everybody had left for lunch. And so I I had to send a text and just go, man, I'm very sorry. That wasn't, my actions were inappropriate. They were not fair to any of y'all. And I would ask for your forgiveness. And there's some members of our team that I've known for a while, but one of my newest team members, Leodra Franklin, who I don't even know that well yet, texted and said, hey, Hunter, grace upon grace. And then explained just how we're all learning and working together and we're gonna figure this out together. And you may hear that and it's not a big deal for you, but in the moment, that's exactly what I needed to hear because she had every right to scold me, uh, to correct me and say, hey, yeah, that ruined our meeting. And like, that was inappropriate. And now we can't meet and talk about these things. But because God has transformed her by grace, she now is able to give this grace even in everyday moments. Because when we get grace, we learn to give it and it is not a burden. And she took that step of reconciliation and offering grace to me. This is how I would sum it up, and I don't have it on the screen, but if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write this down. It's that the mystery of grace and reconciliation that's been revealed to us, this mystery that's been revealed, leads to ministry of grace and reconciliation that's been entrusted to us. The mystery revealed leads to ministry entrusted. And so we don't just look at this mystery that's been revealed and go, hey, thank you, God, that's great. We will take it. We take it, we let it transform us, and we pass it. We're stewards of grace, ministers of reconciliation. And at the risk of sounding super cheesy, and I know it could, but I'm going for it, okay? Don't you wish there was an icon or something we could see that would remind us of these two things, that there's a vertical aspect to our salvation, that there's grace that we've been given, that there's reconciliation that's happened between us and God. And then there's a horizontal aspect too of grace that we now get to to give to people and reconcile as the people of God. Don't you wish we had something like that to see every day? And when I see this cross, I'm not just reminded of the act that took place on it so many years ago to bring me salvation, but the overflow of what that does to my life that what God has done in me, he's given me that as a gift to pass that on to people. And not just the theological, like here's what salvation is, the everyday practical, the church living out 
the grace and reconciliation that God has given to us so that we might be the most radical group of people in the whole entire world that exists in the way that we look, in the way that we act, the truth that we preach, the grace that we give, all because of what Christ has done in in us and what he wants to do through us. And so if you'll stand with me, you'll, you'll see on here that there's two things similar about these two graphs, and it's that both of them hinge on the work of Jesus. So everything we do, every time we preach, no matter what we're preaching on, you're gonna hear us talk about the gospel of Jesus because as Gentiles, it's only through him that we're even able to see and understand and accept these things. So as we finish, before we go out and live as the church, expressing this manifold wisdom of God, let's go to Christ and worship together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We give you praise, give you the glory that you deserve. We remember your act on the cross. God, we say thank you for what it's not only done for us, but now what you do through us, Lord. We give you this time as a time of worship.
love hearing you guys sing. Um, hey, fellowship, if there's anybody new with us here this morning, we're one, we're glad that you're here, um, and two, we would love to meet you. Um, and we actually have a, a, new, a newcomer's gathering, um, and it's in, the, it's in the building just over here. It's in the FSM Worship Center um, after this service. If you have child care, that's fine. You can go pick them up and come over after. We would love to get the chance to meet you to tell us a little bit more, or to tell you a little bit more um, about our church and uh, get the opportunity for you to tell us a little bit more about yourself, too. Um, Fellowship, if you're in need of prayer this morning, our prayer team is here, um, and we would love to pray for you. And you can, you can meet them just over here next to the baptistry. Uh, Fellowship, we love you. Uh, I've enjoyed this time of worship that we've had together. We'll see you next Sunday. You're dismissed.